talking about temptation. I think. Um, Some of us were waiting for the coffee to finish. Oh, that's okay. I think uh, when we talk about temptation, it's something that if you're human, and I think everyone in the room is, it's something that you have to engage with and deal with and struggle with throughout your life. Why? Because all humans, by definition, if you're human, and especially if you accept the Torah's definition of what a human is, is that a human is conflicted. A human is half body, half soul. A human is uh, uh, comprised of of multiple warring elements within uh, him or herself. And that creates conflict. And that creates a struggle. And that struggle is uh, kind of almost the definition of who we are. You know? No, it's fine, it's fine. We, we have now. Thank you so much, Shauna. I appreciate that. You know, the, the actual name of man in Hebrew, I may, I may have mentioned this before, that what's the name that the Torah gives man? What's Adam. Adam. And the Talmud says that every, every Hebrew word, every Hebrew word, uh, the, the, the meaning of the word is hidden within the actual word itself. The example for this, the easiest example, is that the word for word is the same word as the word for thing. You know, that sounds like a tongue twister. The word for word is davar, and the word for thing is davar. Because the thing, or the function, or the utility of the word is understood in the actual name of the word. So the name for man is Adam. Adam, right? What does Adam mean? What is the word Adam? So on one hand, it means earth. Adama, the word Adama means earth. We know man is to, it comes from earth and ends up there, right? Everything you consume comes from earth. Your makeup is from the earth. Your body's makeup is from the earth. And when someone gets submerged on the earth, they kind of blend in real nicely. On the other hand, man is also Adam, which is Adameh, to be similar. To be similar to what, says the Talmud? To be similar to God. To be similar to God. So man, by, by man's very nature, the, the nature, even the definition of man is this conflict of being half just like the earth and half like God, right? Half body, half soul. And that creates the conflict. And uh, learning about how we define temptation and how we engage and deal with it, I think is, is a, a skill that is important for all humans because that's what humans do all day and all night. Okay. Now, additionally, I think that uh, we'll try to demonstrate this as well. But the still, the still of engaging, of conquering one's temptation, is a gateway skill. Right? We know that marijuana is a gateway drug, right? <laughs> it's going to bring you to other things, right? There are certain skills that are isolated skills that are, you know, that it's very nice to know how to do something. I play piano, but it's not really going to help you anywhere else in life. You know, maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe you get a, a nice gig teaching piano. But it's, it's a skill. It's an isolated skill. And there are other skills that have a very broad overlap and very broad reach and going to help you in a lot of different areas of life. And the skill of, of battling temptation is something which perhaps we can even say is going to help you more than any other skill that you could possibly acquire. Because the reach is going to be so far and, 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 and it's going to cover so many various aspects of your life and just raise your standard of living, just this one thing. It'll help you professionally, it'll help you with your relationship, it'll help you with your, uh, you know, with your own sanity, with your intelligence, with accomplishing anything you set your mind out to do. 
So that's why it's also very important still, um, um, not only something that we have to deal with a lot, so we'll have lots of, uh, of, of the, the arena of practice for this skill is, you know, is, is, is very broad, but also it's very uh, impactful uh, on, on, uh, on the, the quality of life that we're going to have. And additionally, uh, when we learn about this characteristic, we'll learn a lot about Torah. Because what we find, especially from the sources in the Talmud, wow, is that a beautiful sound, how quiet it is? Sorry. <laughs> Whew, wow. When we learn about temptation, the Talmud almost always links temptation with Torah. And it seems a little bit bizarre. They seem to be separate things. We think of Torah as some lofty thing, it's for the scholars, it's something intellectual, and temptation is some, something a lot more base. And it doesn't seem that the, 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 the overlap or the relationship seems a little bit bizarre, but when we learn a little bit more about each one of these elements, temptation and Torah, we'll see that they're actually, uh, they're actually facing each other and they're, and they're, they're really you know, two sides of, of, uh, of, of, one, of one idea. Or two opposites, maybe we could even say. Okay, so who here knows the Hebrew name for temptation? Anyone knows? Has anyone ever heard of Yetzer Hara? Oh, you've heard of that, right? You've heard of that. Okay, so Yetzer Hara is typically translated as evil inclination, right? Evil inclination. And uh, the Talmud additionally tells us that this idea of Yetzer Hara is one part of this evil triumvirate. Right? This three-headed monster, right? There's three elements of one entity. Uh, one of them is the Yetzirahara, which we loosely translate as evil inclination, and I'll, I'll explain why, because we'll get to other definitions which may change our perspective of being evil. <laughs> we'll get to that right away. Uh, so that's the first, ha- the first element of this, uh, this three-headed monster. We have something called Hasatan, right? We're all familiar with the term Satan, now, it's very important to distinguish between the, the Jewish term Satan and uh, its uh, ugly stepchild or stepbrother uh, that was copied by the Christians because we don't believe in there being any other power aside from God. Everything derives its power or its existence from God. Nothing can exist outside of God. That's the basic definition of Jewish theology. So it's not like there's these two, there's like the good God and the bad God. We don't believe anything in that. However, God creates certain forces, right? God has a goal with what he does. And in order to achieve this goal, he creates certain realities uh, that, that, that certain powers that exist within a certain framework. And one of those powers is the Yetzirah, which tries to compel man to sin. Another, another element of that is the Satan, which is the recounting of man's sin, which is basically taking a person's actions and giving them eternal uh, consequences. And last thing is the, the idea called Malach HaMavis. Perhaps you heard about this idea. is called the angel of death. We've all heard of that term. Have we ever heard of the angel of death? Also another Jewish concept, which, concept which is the, kind of the actualization of, 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 of the realities that, that a person does, God forbid, with their sins. So this entity is basically our life's foe. It's trying to mess... Uh, it's trying to... Uh, it's trying to... Uh, uh, present as many obstacles for our uh, path to success. It's going to take those mistakes and make sure they live on for eternity, and it's going to uh, uh, take those mistakes and use that as ways to make our life worse. And this is all by design, because God wants this to be like, to be like that. Right? That's the, the, God's intention is that we should have to face the struggle. Right? God wants us to have to engage with these challenges. Okay, so what do we know about... But we're going to be focusing today basically on the more 
practical element of that, and that's the Yetzirah, right? And that's the, uh, the force that God employs to make us sin. What do we know about this thing? Right. What do we know about it? Just what does its name shed light on its nature? What's it called? Yetzer Ra, evil inclination. So what do we know about it? What's the uh, what's the adjective in that in that? Uh, evil. It's evil. It's bad, right? That's the first thing we know before you even analyze any of the other sources. The first thing you know is that listen, that that's the name, and the fact that Talmud even says it's so bad that even its creator. And the creator here is a capital C, i.e. God. Even its creator called it bad. The idea being that, you know, someone, the thing that you make, the thing that you create, you're supposed to have kind of an affinity towards, you know? It's like the kid who comes home from school with, like, the picture they're so proud of. Even doesn't really look like anything. Like, it's not really that impressive an artistic accomplishment. But of course, something that they did, right, they, they feel a certain positive affinity towards it. God created the Eitzer Ra, God created the evil inclination, and he himself labeled it as bad. So that's the first thing we know about it. It's bad. Now, I will change the perspective by throwing y'all a curveball. Ready? He's ready for a curveball. I'm going to share with you guys a statement in Midrash. The Midrash says in Genesis, right at the beginning, everyone's, everyone's seen the first chapter of Genesis. It's kind of the you know, beginning of the book. You know, we've, all, we've, all, we've all started the book at least at some point. And it says on day three, it's about like 10 or 12 verses in, and God saw all that he did, and behold, it was exceedingly good. Right? In the original Hebrew. Tov means good, me'od means exceedingly good. Right? If someone, if you're in speaking Hebrew and you say something is very, uh, whatever that may be, me'od is the term you would use. Me'od is the adjective you would use to, uh, to take. Uh, whatever you're describing and saying that it's very good or very bad, right? Tov me'od. So the Medrash analyzed this this statement as follows. And God saw everything that he did, and behold, it was exceedingly good. It was good, but not not just regular good. It was was really, really good. It was exceedingly good. And the word tov, the the Medrash assigned to the yetzer tov. The good inclination. Tov, tov, right? Me'od, exceedingly good. Zeh, yetzer, ra. This is the evil inclination. Now, wait a minute, Rabbi. You said that the evil inclination is evil. You said that God called it evil. Its very name is bad. How does the Midrash, pray tell, how does the Midrash tell us that when the Torah says that God saw all that he did and it was exceedingly good, it's referring to the Yetzirah. What does that mean? We see conflicting ideas here. How could something that's by very very nature is something which is trying to compel us to sin, it's called bad, that's its monitor, that's its name, yet the Midrash describes it as being exceedingly good. So, I think that um, as you mentioned, our life only has value because we have resistance, because we have challenges, because we have struggles. If we just got everything delivered to us on a silver platter, if we never had to sweat a day in our lives, we don't have to work to accomplish anything, there's no meaning in that. That's not meaningful. 
I thought that was pretty good until we changed our minds. What do you mean? I mean, we had it all on a platter for us. Then we decided the bread of shame comes into this business here. We should earn it. Well, yeah, because that's who wants to be shamed. That's exactly my point. You know, people, you don't value something you don't earn to achieve, right? If you just were hand-delivered everything, right, it's not a way, it's, you don't, there's no meaning in that, right? If there's no struggle to achieve something, it's just me you got, you don't value it. And I'll give you guys an example, just because we have a naysayer here, and I appreciate that, by the way. If you didn't have, God forbid, any one of your vital organs functioning, right, your heart, God forbid, God forbid, you didn't have a good heart or good liver or whatever. And then someone says, you know what? I'll donate you my kidney. Like, really? Like, that'd be the kindest thing someone could possibly do for you. Right? Correct? Yeah. Now, we all were granted kidneys and hearts and livers and all these wonderful things for free. But no, people don't value it because we got it for free. We don't stop for a second and say, uh, Unless we work hard to do that. But uh, most people go throughout their lives without for a second appreciating all the goodness that they have. Right? Our vision, what, what we, went, we went through this exercise once before. No one here, uh, if, uh, if uh, past performance is indicative of future results, no one here would give up their vision for any amount of money in the world. So we already have gifts for free uh, worth things beyond anything we could possibly uh, fathom. But we don't value them because we have them for free. You know, if someone didn't have it and then he got it, someone didn't have vision and suddenly, voila, wakes up one morning with vision, they would appreciate it so much more, right? Because they experienced life without it, right? So we would only value our accomplishments because we got them. We didn't have them earlier. Now, this is all compounded if we earned it ourselves. Now, if someone, if someone doesn't have a liver and then they get the liver, or someone doesn't have a kidney, they get the kidney, well, then they're much, they, they value it much more. But if they earned it, if they only got it as a result of their hard work, that just sends it through the roof. That compounds the, the meaning just tenfold, thousandfold, who knows what. God wants us to have meaning in life. But, yeah. Yes. Yes. When we, we, we learn, we learn, we, 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 when we don't give into it, then there's a, a sudden rush. There's a, a feeling that you have conquered. Accomplishment. Absolutely. That maybe if we didn't have that, we would never feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, the, the, term, the, the term that the Torah uses for a challenge, for a test, for a conflict with your evil inclination is a nisayon. Nisayon means a challenge, right? And the Talmud says, Nisayon achar nisayon didulim achar didulim. And the idea being that growth only happens as a result of a positive encounter with, with temptation, right? Uh, when someone has a challenge and they're able to overcome that, that's how they become a greater person. Right? That's how they ascend through the, the spiritual ladder, so to speak. And that's the only way to grow. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no other way to do it. And by definition, we talk about free will a lot here. Free will uh, can, only, uh, can only exist if <coughs> success is not guaranteed. Right? Success is not guaranteed, and then someone accomplishes, well, then they raise their status. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to bring her all back here. Santa, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's bad because it's trying to pull us down, right? It's trying to make us worse than what we are. On one hand. On the other hand, it's, uh, it's exceedingly good because it's the only tool we could possibly use and employ to become better people. That's the only tool we could, we could employ. Right? If you don't have face any resistance, you never build any muscle. You won't. You won't. And if you keep, if, you know, if you, if you, if you keep your, your bike on the lowest speed and you just pedal slowly, well, you're not really facing resistance. You're not really growing. Or adults. <laughs> yeah. So. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's exactly what free will is. Free will is conflict. There's a balance, right? You know, there's what your soul wants, what your body wants, right? And they're balanced. We'll see exactly how they're balanced. Which is, you know, for us it seems like the body is in pole position, right? The body has first dibs. But the body is much more of, a, of, of an influence for us. Uh, so how is that balanced? That's a very good question. Like uh, our soul is like this idea. It's like this. It's like this idea. We're not really so sure. We don't. We don't have a sensual uh, um, interface with our soul. It's very hard for us to see how that there, there's real. There's real balance. And we'll get to that uh, question. But uh, free will means that there's balance, and then the con- and, and then how a person chooses uh, in the face of conflict will determine if they're moving up the ladder or down the ladder. But that's the only way to move the ladder. That's the only way to move the needle. And we were very happy to have this opportunity to improve. And we can only improve as humans or regress as humans in our capacity to choose good or bad. And in fact, what's interesting, this is an amazing story the Talmud tells, the first of a few stories we'll hopefully talk about today. The Talmud tells us of this great rabbi by the name of Abaya. Abaya is a funny name for us, but I guess it it wasn't so funny then. Uh, He lived in, in Babylon, uh, about the year in the fifth century, and you cannot go two pages in the Talmud without seeing his name. Like he's ubiquitous across the Talmud. Really, two pages. You can't go two pages without seeing his name. And it says a story about him. Listen to this story. He's he sees a boy and a girl that they were frolicking, they were fraternizing, and they're about to walk into a, a forest where they're going to be all alone. So he says, I'm going to bust them in the act, so to speak. So he's following them, he's following, following them into the forest. They're walking to the forest. They're totally secluded. There's no one around. A boy and a girl, they're not related to each other, not married to each other, nothing. And he's, and he's walking behind them. He's just following them. And then he sees they walk into the forest. They walk through the whole forest. There's no one around. There's no noise. Not, nothing disturbing them. It's a prime opportunity for sin. And then they just leave. And he says, What happened? And he says, if it was me, if I was, if I was faced with the challenges, no way I would have succeeded. And these these people who know they weren't such impressive, they weren't like they weren't like the scholar like Abaya. Of course not. And he says, if it was me, I couldn't have succeeded. And the Talmud finishes that story off by declaring, Kol Hagadol Mechaviro, Yisro Gadol Himeno. He who is greater than his friend has a greater temptation than his friend. As you grow, your temptation grows along with you. How so? Because if it didn't, you wouldn't be able to go any further. The whole way you could possibly have balance in your free will, hence the opportunity to grow, 
It's only if you have a, uh, a temptation commensurate to your, to, to your status as an individual. So the greater you are, it has to be that, that, that your, your, your temptation rises with, with that as well. So we should go out and look for trouble. No. No, the trouble will follow up. Well, no, that wouldn't help you because if you go out and look for trouble, you'll get trouble. You'll get it, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and in and in fact, uh, interestingly, that the, I, don't, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but there's a, the Talmud talks about a guy who's facing, you know, a fork on the road, and the, uh, the the two roads lead to the same destination, but the attractions on the side are different. And it says that if a man is faced with a fork in the road, and on one side there's like a brothel or a house of prostitutes in the word of the Talmud, and the other side there isn't. He's not allowed to choose to walk past the house of temptation. He has to go the other way. Why? Because we don't want to. We, we don't. We, we, we don't feel like it's 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 um it's arrogant to say I'm going to bring myself to temptation and I'm going to win and then I'll become a greater person. Don't worry. God will make a way for you to encounter temptation. Don't be so brazen to say I want to bring it on myself. Right? You have to try to avoid it. Because there is a risk for you if you're so if you have this bravado and say I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna what's it called then you're you're likely you're likely gonna fail you know so we don't bring temptation upon ourselves but we're invariably gonna face it and then our, our reactions and our uh, uh, choices that we make during the conflict is gonna determine where we move uh, in our spiritual scale. So what you're saying is don't put yourself in a position to be tempted. That's right. You have to choose the other road. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, in essence, we back to our first question. We say yes, it's bad. Why? Because that's the potential for pitfalls. Right? If you're going to regress as a human, it's going to be because of you uh, of these challenges. However, it's also essential for life. Right? It is part of. It's a. It's a very important cog in this machine that enables humans to be humans. Right? enables humans to make choices and to grow or regress as a result of those choices. So therefore, it's very good. Right? It's the engine that kind of spurs, spurs life. So, so we have this idea. How does it work? How does it function? What does it cause a man or a woman to do? Like, how does this influence our decisions? What, what are the mechanisms, what are the methods that the, uh, that the Yetzirah, the evil nation, uh, uh, employs in order to try to cause us to sin? So we find a very interesting definition in the Talmud. The Talmud says it's actually a prayer um, by one of the uh, rabbis. He writes, uh, it says, this is in uh, Brachos 17a, and it says, God, it's known to you that we want to do your will, but who's stopping us? The leaven in the bread. So we have a very bizarre definition of a Yetzirah, evil inclination. This great rabbi, uh, as um, uh, included for posterity in the Talmud, defined the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, as leaven in the bread, as the yeast in the bread. Now, I can think of a lot of ways to describe temptation. A lot of different ways. None of them would include anything about yeast or any other baking products. Why would the Torah, or why would the Talmud, why would this great sage, what lesson are they trying to tell us about the nature of temptation by describing it as leaven in bread? 
I think that's a very legitimate question. And it's a question that I was bothered with for a long time. Now, what do we know about leaven? What, what, what part, of, what part of, of Jewish life and practice involves leaven, leaven in the bread? Buya, matzah. What's buya? Buya. Buya is like a way that. Um, yeah, excellent. Like, you hit the point. Uh, you, <laughs> like, That's it. Like Jim Cramer like, says it like 40,000 times a day, you know. It's not Hebrew. It's not Hebrew, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Attaboy. It's like Attaboy. Well, because in Mandarin means no way. In what? In Mandarin? Mandarin. Well, my rudimentary uh, knowledge of Mandarin is quite limited. <laughs> Nihama. Uh, Very nice. Um, so matzah is unleavened bread, and bread is leavened bread, and yeast makes the bread rise. And if you take a matzah and you take bread, they essentially have the same ingredients. Right? Flour and water makes matzah. Flour and water makes bread. The only difference between those two is leaven. Well, yeah, but you can make bread without sugar, right? No. Well, you can make matzah with sugar as well. Okay. <laughs> um, so essentially the difference is, right, it, you take a matzah, it looks like a flat, if you look at a matzah, you know they have those, those iPad commercials? Remember they had like, you, you see like a pencil? Remember that commercial? Right? So if they put like the matzah behind the iPad, you wouldn't see the matzah. Like it's flat, it's like just this crisp, flat cracker. And you look at bread, and bread's like big and like exciting, and like it jumps out at you. And uh, perhaps, and if you analyze it nutritionally, it's the same thing. The same thing. It's 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 bread, uh, it's bread and matzah. The same thing. It's it's flour and water, and other stuff. Right. The sugar is what makes the leavening grow. If you don't have sugar in Okay, so that's the yeast, correct? So the yeast is what's going to differentiate the bread from the matzah. But essentially, if you actually break it down, it's the same thing. So if I showed you a matzah, and say, is this exciting? You say, well, I can't even see it. It's so flat, it's so small. But it's really the same thing as the bread, right? Essentially, if you break it down, if you look at the molecular level, if you break it down to the molecular level, you'll find that it's the same thing. The Torah, the Talmud calls... The Yetzirah, the inclination, the leaven of the bread. What does leaven do to the bread? It takes something which essentially is really just small and nothing and expands it. We could say perhaps that the Yetzirah, its function is to take certain pleasures and tempt us, right? Create a certain illusion, create a certain fantasy, an allure, a pizzazz to the matzah and just make it look so much more exciting and enticing. It takes what essentially is just matzah. That's, that's, if you were to look at bread without the fantasy, without the, 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 the leaven, it's, it's very not enticing, very not exciting. Right? But if you take that same bread and you add this one little element, it blows it up to, it augments it, it expands it. Wow! Right? Come eat me. So we could say perhaps that what the function of the Yetzirah is, is to create a certain gap in the perceived pleasure, in the perceived essence of a certain idea, right, and the actual essence. Right? Essentially, it's just matzah. But when you perceive it, when you inject a little leaven, 
it makes it look so much so much grander. That's 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 what we can maybe perhaps draw from this uh, statement of Talmud. But I want to share with you guys another statement of Talmud, and this I think is uh, this this imagery I think would help kind of uh, bring the point home. Hopefully, we find uh, this is the book of Sukkah. Now, who who here knows what the tractate the book of Sukkah call, uh, talks about? Sukkot. Yeah, there's a whole book in the Talmud. It's, it's, it's the Sukkot. And uh, it talks a lot about what, what an etrog is, what a lulav is, and what, how, how to build a Sukkot, right? That's what you would expect. But all the way at the end, the page 52a, it talks about the Yetzirah. And it says something like this. I'm going to read to you. I have it written down here. Rabbi Judah says, In the time to come, the Holy One, blessed is He, so that's a reference to God, will bring the evil inclination and slaughter it. Okay. In the presence of the righteous and the wicked. So in some future time, right, God is going to take the evil inclination, slaughter it in front of who? In front of the wicked and the righteous people. Okay. To the righteous, it will, it will have the appearance of a towering mountain. And to the wicked, it will have the appearance of a strand of hair. And both of them will cry. Both of them will be weeping. And the righteous will be weeping. How do we overcome such a formidable mountain? And the wicked people will, will say, will cry and weep. How did we trip over such a strand of hair? And that's it. That's the end of the Talmud. And the, there's a few major questions that, 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 uh, that, that um, arise after reading this Talmud. Question number one is, well, what does that even mean to slay the evil inclination? How does, like, just what is actually happening in this, in this, uh, in you know, in this future that Rabbi Judas is, is is describing? I think that's a very basic question. You know, uh, what what are they crying? Is this tears of joy? Is it tears of sorrow? And all this is discussed at great, great, great length. And I'm sure we could have a class just in this particular statement of Talmud. But I think that this question that's screaming from this uh, this piece of Talmud is. That if you if you look at what it's describing, it's describing the Almighty slaying something, and you have people there witnessing, and different groups of people see vastly different things. But it, it's one thing; it's it's only one thing. It's the Yetzirah, right? But according to the Tzaddikim, according to the righteous people, it looks like a mountain. According to the Rishaim, according to the wicked people, it looks like a strand of hair. How could it be that one thing appears so vastly different to different groups of people? Okay. I like that. I like that as well. Well, are you talking about ultimately the, the perfection of the world? Well, that's kind of what's going into my head. And if I, I may be wrong on this, but somewhere along the line, I want to say I read that even when the world is perfected, there are two holidays that you're still required to participate in. One mm-hmm. being Purim. I was thinking the other one was Sukkot. Uh. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what the Talmud exactly says. I don't remember exactly what it says, but yeah, it's something I know for sure. Purim is, is still celebrated. Yeah, before, but but okay, okay. So okay.
but but either 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 way. So we're dealing with this some future time. But how, how does the how does the what's the relevance of which holidays we still fulfill to this particular episode or description narrative of this of this slaying and this vastly different perspectives of different people of the same entity. That's uh, a yeah. Question. So in this Talmudic metaphor, yeah. mountain versus a standard yes. area, what happens to where vast majority of us fall? A little bit wicked, a little bit righteous, somewhere in between. Maybe, right? maybe, maybe, like either, so maybe for us, for yeah. us, it'll, it'll appear somewhere in between. A hill. <laughs> because <Maybe>. a mound. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. All these are very questions, and I think if you remember, the Talmud is giving us lessons. It's not telling us stories that are just either folklore or just something for entertainment purposes only. There's a lesson inherent here, and I think that we could perhaps draw the lesson that um, perhaps what it's really telling us is that there's a certain change in perspective pre and post conflict. Before the conflict, if someone's presented with an opportunity for sin, and at the peak of passion or the heat of excitement, something seems so exciting, so appealing, so alluring. It looks like a mountain. How can you possibly overcome that? Now, if someone doesn't give in, so to speak, well, that perspective remains. That perspective remains. As opposed to someone who's a, who's a winning person, by definition, means someone who did give in, who wasn't uh, successful in their, in, in their conflict, well, then the fantasy is removed and they see it for what it really is. And they ask themselves, was it really worth it? Did it, was it really worth me to trip over something which, has a, which was as easy and as conquerable as this hair? Yeah, Len. You know, one thing, whatever happened to Yom Kippur? What about it? I thought that was the most important day of the year. It is. I thought you said it wasn't. Most important of the day of the year? You, well... I think another time you said it's a day to remember, but I think that you mentioned there were another more important day. More important day? Because they give given the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, every single day of the year. And Yom Kippur is there for those that choose not to. You said something like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm planning on, uh, in, in, in two weeks, from today, God willing, where we talk a lot about Yom Kippur. I think it's uh, two weeks or three weeks from today, I have a class that was actually suggested by our very own uh, David Astin. He suggested it like six months ago, and I apologize. I've been waiting, waiting on it till now. Uh, but uh, he suggested a class on forgiveness, and I said I made a decision to withhold it until the season, so to speak, for forgiveness and atonement, i.e., Rishonim Yom Kippur, the high holidays that are upcoming uh, really soon. And uh, I didn't forget about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll talk more about, about Yom Kippur. Len, you were saying. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So for the righteous, then, wouldn't the level of challenge therefore be higher, uh, or more exponential mm-hmm. or greater than for the wicked who seem That's exactly what uh, uh, what the woman sitting directly to your right said. Absolutely. Okay. It's 
for them to see something like the piece of hair and they just fall and you know when like like you were saying while ago that that uh it's uh for those who are inclined to it it's something so easy that they could have just avoided but they chose not to and the ones that and and are, after they made that decision they see they they ask themselves really that's what i did and that's now you know i feel so bad afterwards i had a great a great story a great um I think to illustrate this point, so there's um, on almost every packaged food, if you go to the local grocery or the local uh, Kroger or H-E-B or whatever, you'll find a lot of kosher symbols, right? I'm familiar with the kosher symbols on the food. So today we kind of have it really easy for as a kosher consumer because there's such uh, ubiquitous kosher food everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere you find kosher food, you find that, that, that ever-present OU symbol. You know, there's an O and there's a U in it. And uh, like non-Jews, like think it's something to do with like uh, you know some inspection or something like that. Or, but what it is, what it stands for is is is, is that's the uh, the Orthodox Union, which is the biggest kosher certification comp- company in the world, basically. But sometimes you'll see an OU and then a little D afterwards. I don't see that. Yeah. A little OU and a D, so it stands for dairy. Now, um, the Talmud tells us that we know that kosher animals um, are kosher. And also the derivatives of kosher animals are kosher as well. So eggs and milk from kosher animals are kosher. So if you have the milk of a cow, it's kosher. Why? Because the cow is kosher. The cow is kosher. The milk is kosher, right? Chickens are kosher. Chicken eggs are kosher because they come from kosher animals. As opposed to, let's say, pig milk is not kosher. So the Talmud says you have, if you want to drink milk, you have to make sure that there was a Jew supervising the cow being milked. Because otherwise, who knows what milk you're getting. Maybe it's pig milk or whatever, or some other kind of milk. Yeah. So that's what the Talmud says. Now, the problem is, is that you don't have Jews inspecting the milk that go into the Hershey's uh, uh, chocolate or Nestle or M&M's or anything like that. So how are you allowed to consume M&M's, even though you know it's made out of milk, but the, the milk wasn't actually supervised full-time by a Jew making sure that it's, it's cow milk and not pig milk or some other non-kosher milk. So what they came up with is that, well, they came up with it, but the the... the there are those that say, quite legitimately, that because there's this tremendous fear of like the government coming in and swooping in, of someone's uh, presenting milk as cow's milk, but it really is pig's milk, well, then they'll get the operation shut down. You don't really expect Nestle or one of these big companies to, to just you know supplement uh, uh, pig's milk for cow's milk. So even though there isn't actually a Jew there on site watching every time that they're, they're milking the cow... But it's it's as if there's there's no bait, there's no there's no better uh, supervision than the threat of having the FDA swoop in or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, yeah. So they, that's what they call OUD. But there's some people that say, you know what? I'm only going to consume what's called Chalav Yisrael, which means uh, Jewish milk, so to speak, and it means it was supervised from beginning to end by some Jew, and that's why you sometimes you go you go to these some stores down south over there. Uh, there's a lot of people in our community that say we only drink Chalav Yisrael and. If it says in the bottle Chalabi Israel, they'll, they'll drink it, otherwise they won't. So, how is this relevant? <laughs> Rabbi, okay. Well, like this. So, so <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not so stringent. I, 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 uh, I, I, eat, I eat the OUD, no problem. I eat M&M's and peanut M&M's and uh, Mars and all the silly chocolate bars. But my in-laws, Canada, they live in Canada. There's such a p- 
plentifulness of, of Chalav Yisrael, and they, uh, they refrain. They don't eat what's called Chalav Stam, Chalav Stam, which means it's unknown, so to speak. So they won't eat the OUD. So we were in Canada a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. And I went to the store, and I was buying some candy for the kids, and I bought some M&M's. And my sister-in-law is there, and she's never, she's never consumed an m M&M in her life. She's never consumed one, because it's O-U-D. And she was like, I'm sorry, but you are not allowed to bring that into our cottage. Cottage is the kind of like a summer home, because there are people here, and, and it's not fair for us, and just because you want to consume it, and just because you want to eat it, and, you know... To her, it's like if you take all the pleasures in the world and combine them, it doesn't even reach like with the value of like one M&M. Because she's never had it. She looks at the M&M as this mountain, this towering mountain. And to her, it's like it's the greatest oppression that we're consuming in front of her. As opposed to we've all consumed M&Ms. I assume we've all consumed M&Ms. And we know they're, they're all right, you know. Not exactly life-changing, you know. It's not. It isn't. Yeah, you know, it's 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 it, yeah. Uh, could you live with that M&M? Probably, you know. Going to oh yeah, we're going. <laughs> she said she said she said to me. Um, so my aunts have this this really nice summer home on the lakefront. She says it's called a Canadian's co- called cottage cottage. So she says um, this is not your cottage, and you're not allowed. To, I said it's not yet my cottage, not yet. <laughs> uh, that's a joke. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Soon enough. Yeah. Anyhow, so but yeah, that's the point. The point is, is that perceived pleasures, right, are oftentimes a disappointment because we have a sort of the answerize and a take it and make it so exciting for us and so enticing for us and so sexy and so appealing, and then afterwards you look back and you say that really wasn't that worth. It. You know, wasn't 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 as good as it was being advertised. That's the function of the Yetzirah. In fact, uh, this is also one of my favorite pieces of Talmud. Uh, I'll just read the Talmud and everyone wants to understand the, the, uh, what it's talking about. Quote, this is multiple places in Talmud. Um, the one I'm reading from is in Hedron 107a. There is a small organ in man. If he satiates it, then it is hungry. If he hungers it, then it is satiated. <laughs> so, um, and that's a really strong lesson, and it's it's true that sometimes that there are certain temptations, especially for men, that the opposite of what you would expect is actually true. That the more they try to satiate it, the more hungry they are, and the more they need it. As opposed to if they learn a little self control, you know, they're able to have a more balanced approach, and that. Is a very good thing. Just that alone is worth coming here, guys. I think like it's it's a good lesson. It's a lesson like if self control makes us more human, more less animal like, you know. And by design, right, we're presented with situation where the where it's counterintuitive. Where the more you satiate this small organ referenced in the Talmud, the more hungry you are. As opposed to the, you know, the more you 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 uh, deprive it, the more satiated it is. You know, you have these marines in the combat, and they can go months and years, and they don't, uh, you know, not 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 uh, not one lewd thought encounters their mind because they're trying to save their skin. You know, they're busy. They're 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 they're, they're, they're yes, they're they're sexually deprived, but they're not like uh, they're satiated, so to speak. It's not on their minds at all. You know, 
what's that? Vitaly, share the joke. <laughs> Observation. <laughs> okay, so um, so that so that's that. So we have what well, we have here. Uh, uh, this was all set up. This is all, now we'll finish the setup. You know, of the class, uh, Act One. Uh, what we have here basically is a reality that exists within all of us by design and it's a, an opportunity to grow on one hand but it's also a potential for pitfalls and obstacles and the, meth- the, the methods that we use to engage with them, there's multiple methods and they're going to be tools that we're going to use <coughs> to overcome our temptations and like we said earlier, there uh, these tools will, that we'll find uh, will have a wide-reaching effect on uh, the quality of life for us on a general whole, not just uh, isolated to temptation, but to every area of life. So I wanted to share um, another piece of Talmud. I know this class is heavy in sources, and I'm, I'm not even bringing all the sources. I, I skipped a whole bunch already of them. And this is from Kedushin 30b, and this is the longest one, I think, uh, the longest source. And I also I only only selected parts of it. Uh, it's much longer, but I, I but this is the core idea. The Torah is compared to an elixir of life, samtam, an elixir of life, a parable of a father who hid his son and gave him a grave wound. So we have a story, an example: father gave the son a, you know, a grave wound. He, he hit him and caused him to have a great wound, and placed a bandage on the wound. And he said to him, "My son, so long as the bandage is on the wound." You can eat what you want and drink what you want and wash with warm or cold water and you should not fear. However, if you remove it, you will get boils. So this is the Talmud giving us an illustration of an idea. A father gives a son a big zetz, a big wound, and places a bandage on top of the wound. And he says to them, if you keep the bandage on the wound, then you're, you're safe. Eat what you want. You don't have to worry about the wound any worse. You can drink what you want. You can you can bathe in warm or cold water, and you're safe. However, if you remove it, you'll get boils. That's the parable that the Talmud says. So too. So what's the what's the lesson? Hashem told the Jews, "I created a Yetzirah. I created an evil inclination, and I created the Torah as an antidote. If you engage in Torah." Right? The Torah is the, is the bandage, the, the, the proverbial bandage. If you get a Torah, you are not delivered it. Um, rather, you will lord over him. As opposed to, if you refrain from Torah, then he will dominate you. That's the statement of the Talmud. And what we can draw from this is, number one, that God is like our Father, and God loves us. And God seeks nothing more than to give us the best opportunity to have the best life possible. And he was the one who gave us this wound, this bad thing, right? This evil inclination. It's bad. But he loves us. He wouldn't give us something bad. Right? He would give us something, only something good. Why would a parent give their kid a wound? You read this. Wait a minute. We should call, call child protective services. There's a father who gave his child a grave wound, right? Doesn't make any sense, right? This kid, this father should be arrested, <laughs> be put away. But no, it's really a positive thing because it, it's an opportunity for the child to become great. But God didn't only give us this, uh, this, this wound, he also gave us the antidote. He gave us the bandage. And this bandage is a protective, it's a, 
once you have the bandage, nothing else could uh, could cause the wound to worsen. You're safe. You're good to go. Nothing that potentially could cause the wound to become worse. Right? Not, nothing will will impact you. Right? I created the Torah. I'm, I'm sorry. I created the evil inclination, the Yitzhara. I created the Torah as an antidote. What it's telling us is that the Torah is the antidote for temptation. And You know, you think about this. Wait a minute. Okay, we have a Torah. Rabbi, this is what you're trying to sell us. This is what you guys are all thinking. You're trying to sell us that the Torah is going to be an antidote for our temptation. And uh, respectfully, you could ask, how exactly does that work? What about the Torah is going to enable us to Lord over our temptation? Legitimate question. And I was thinking about this and I came up with two answers this morning. Um, you know, we, we look at the Torah. The Torah gives us lots of rules. You read the rules and sometimes, the, like we said, Maimonides, we talked a lot about Maimonides last time. Maimonides kind of organizes it and clarifies it and makes it uh, more, you know, uh, user-friendly. And you say there's so many rules, and does God really care what methods of hair removal we use on our beards or our heads? Is it really so important to God? Is it so important for God of the cosmos? Whether or not we eat milk and meat together, or we cook, is it so important to God? That's a very common question. Does God really care about this? Really, this is what's important to God? That's a very, it's a very common question that most people, and especially if you read the Torah, the Torah gives us rules about everything, rules about governing every aspect of our lives, and lots of restrictions. And the legitimate question is, is this really so important to God? And I, I think that the way to answer this question is, first of all, by acknowledging that we don't really know what's important to God. We don't know. We know what God tells us. We don't know why he's telling us what he's telling us. But... I think that even us mortal humans could figure out, perhaps, or to get, we could give a, a, a decent guess as to what God's intention is. And we know God loves us. That we know for sure. And God wants us to maximize our life. Right? God is, perhaps, God is trying to teach us with the instructions of the Torah how to overcome our uh, temptation. Us humans, the skill that we need more than anything else is a skill of self-control. If you have self-control, you'll have tremendous relationships. Guaranteed. Why? Because when you get into a fight, you'll know how to hold your, hold your mouth, close your mouth tight, and not say something that you'll regret for the next 50 years or six months or whatever. Right? And you know, you, you, you'll, you'll be able to Overcome your desire to sleep in. Overcome your desire to procrastinate at your work, and you'll 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 be aggressive in in, in trying to make your, maximize your life. Right. The second you have control, you have willpower. Right. You have the uh, the the keys were handed to you. The keys of your life are handed to you. You're not being drawn one way or the other by these whims and whimsicals of your life. Right. You're in charge. You're in the driver's seat. Everything's open to you. Anything you want to do, you, you, you can do. Right? That one skill, that one quality is the most important quality because it's the gateway quality. Problem is, 
that from a very early age we're just we're just total totally reckless with regards to self-control. Kid, they just want, they just, their body gives them, the, them messages. I want this, I want this. Like, I want a toy, grab it. Right? I'm, 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 I want to eat food, scoop it up with my, with my face. Right? I want, I, I want something, scream till I get it. Right? Kids are born without any self-control. Nah, they're just instinct. They just follow their instinct. As we grow up, we learn a little bit of self-control. The Torah, uh, what a parent says, this you can't do. You cannot put your feet on the table. I had my parents tell me that. What do you mean? I want to put my feet on the table, right? But a parent, a smart parent, creates rules and boundaries, and that helps a child have a certain measure of self-control to become a normal human, to be able to live in society, to be able to be a responsible person. Right? That's what a parent's job, it's a parent's job, to train their child for life. God is just like that. God wants, he's a parent who loves us, who wants us to be successful in life. Therefore, he knows that the most important thing for us is to have self-control. It's the most important skill you could possibly acquire. Because once you have that skill, anything else is obtainable. What God is saying, I'm going to give you restrictions. Maybe I don't care about what, whether or not you're going to, uh, you know, does it, maybe God maybe doesn't care. Irrespective of that, God, when God teaches us, this I can do, this I cannot do, and I may want to do it. I may want to do it. I have an urge to do it. But I know how to say, no, I'm not doing it. Right? Because God tells me not to do it. And then I learn a very valuable skill of self-control. And perhaps what this is what it means, that if you have the Torah, the antidote. Because you're going to face these conflicts, you're going to face these challenges with the Yetzirah. Right? If you are not well-skilled, well-versed in tactics of self-control, if you've never told yourself, no, I'm not doing it, even though I want to do it, if you don't have experience in that uh, method of, of processing and making decisions, you have no chance. You have no chance. But the Torah is teaching us, it's giving us a regimented approach. Learn self-control. Learn that you don't just grab and take and just be a total uh, puppet in the hands of your, of your whims and your instinct. No. You want something? So what? If, you can, if, if it's against the Torah, I can't have it. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Nothing. <laughs> and then you learn how to say no. And how to train yourself. How to harness yourself. You learn self-control. And then, when you, when you face this conflict with, with your evil inclination... You're a mighty warrior. You're, you're, very, you're used to already saying no. Right? You're trained. You're highly skilled. You're a professional self-control artist. Self-denial. <laughs> well, it's not, well, no, it's not self-denial because ultimately, if someone just, do, if someone just does what they, their instinct wants, they might just sit on a couch and play a PlayStation their entire life. Right. Yes, it may seem like self-denial, but it's denial of their instinct, but it's broadening of their intelligence, of their who I want to be and what I want to do in life. Right? It, it enables them to do anything that they, their mind tells them to do. So it's expansion of the mind and denial of the instinct, if you are actually going to analyze it. And you're right. Yes, you are denying yourself. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, uh, I want this cheeseburger. Right? Well, the Torah says you can't have a cheeseburger. The Torah says that multiple times. Cheeseburger is against the Torah. But, but I want it. You are denying your instinct 
right? But you're uh, developing a skill that will enable you to maximize your intelligence. Yeah. And if you actually analyze this, this is a good point. None of the restrictions of the Torah, none of them, are restrictions against more of the intellectual desires. They're all restrictions against the physical, the more base desires. And that's exactly the point. The Torah wants us to be uh, intelligent or intelligently driven, right? And it wants the arena of our life to be in the more intellectual spheres. And if we're not used to uh, withholding from the from the from the physical, right, or denying ourselves. It's like, I'll use the word denying, right? If we're not used to denying ourselves some of the physical, well, then we're not going to be able to. We can only kind of live, really live in one of those uh, one of those arenas. But other than saying deny, instead of languaging it as a negative, you could language it as a positive. You're not denying yourself something; you're elevating yourself. Yeah, I I was just using his terminology. I agree, and I you guys know I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I, I, you know, I, uh, I, I've said, I've shared this before multiple times. Uh, my favorite story, Rabbi Salanta and, and the cigarette. Remember, I've shared that story. I'll say it again because it's just my favorite story. I think I've said it three times already. I'll say it again. <laughs> so there was this great rabbi who lived in the 19th century, Rabbi Israel Salanter, and he was a smoker. They say, Rabbi, how does, how does a rabbi become a smoker? Don't we know that it causes cancer? Well, that only came out in 1964, very recently. He died in 1883. So he woke up once in the middle of the night, and he really wanted a cigarette. Really, really, really wanted a cigarette. Problem is, he didn't have any cigarettes with him, and the only place he could buy cigarettes was a mile away, and he didn't have any cars. Cars weren't invented yet. So he was faced with a dilemma, right? What do I do? Do I go back to sleep, or do I go get the cigarette? And what did he choose, Len? What do you think he chose? Is that your final answer? <laughs> I guess you're saying no. I thought there were no cigarettes at the time. What do you mean? Of course they did. 1883? Of course they invented cigarettes. Tobacco? Well, that's like what I get to me. It's the 24 hour. Yeah, that's. It was a 7 Eleven, you know? Uh, so I. Yeah, yeah, you probably heard it. Yeah. <laughs> So either way, he was presented with the two options. Do I go back to sleep? Am I lazy? Or do I go, or do I walk this whole mile? Am I giving into my temptation? Either way, I'm going to be enforcing one of my negative characteristics, either my laziness or my temptation. So what he decided to do was to walk all the way there, but not buy the cigarette, and walk back and go to sleep. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not lazy. I'm battling my, my laziness. I'm, I have willpower. I'm, I'm not giving in to this whim of mine. I'm going all the way there, but I'm not buying the cigarette. I'm not giving in to my temptation. I have control of my, of my, of my temptation. Going back to sleep. His mistake was waking up. Well, no, no. But he, this, and this is an example. He had a conflict. Yeah, I understand. He learned self-control. He overcame his temptation. And now he's a greater person as a result. He's more in control of himself. Right? He weakened his, uh, uh, his, uh, his, um, uh, the power of, 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 his, of his instincts. Right? He's more of an intellectual individual. But he was thinking it because he got up and he walked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got up and it didn't go back to sleep. That would be the easiest thing. You know? Um, you know, so that, 
I think that that's kind of the best way to engage with temptation. The best way to engage with temptation is to be well-versed in Torah. Now, we said number one because Torah teaches us about self-control. The Torah rigid restrictions are really lessons in becoming more of a intellectually-minded person and someone who's not just driven one way uh, as the waves turn with, uh, with their various uh, desires and instincts. Additionally, the Torah strengthens the intellect. So this is coming, coming at it from another angle. Right? The Torah is the greatest pencil sharpener for the mind. You know? we, we, we're in this maelstorm. Is that the pr- pr- correct pronunciation? Anyone? Well, no one knows. Maelstorm? Okay, close enough. Okay. Um, huh? Close enough. Okay, I think, I think it's the second time I've asked that in this class. I don't learn from my lessons. I don't learn from my mistakes. Uh, but we're in this... Uh, in this... Uh, you know, this uh, conflict between our body and our in- intelligence. The Torah is just logic, straight intelligence, straight sharpening of the mind. And the, the sharper the mind is, right, by definition, the weaker the body is, right? And the weaker the body is, the, more, the easier it is for someone to, uh, uh, the, the, or the, the easier it is for someone to, uh, to beat it down. Now, I want to share another story. This is also a great story. Uh, and I think it's, it presents us another method, uh, more of a, like, immediate method. If someone's actually engaged with, in a temptation, means they, I say, hey, Torah is the antidote. That's more of, like, a broad perspective. Right? If you have Torah, you're kind of, uh, you know, you, you're much safer. You're much better off, uh, in, you know, in a, in a general uh, broad uh, perspective of temptation. What about in the actual uh, in the actual ring, so to speak, of temptation? Like, what if someone's actually presented with a temptation, and what do they do? Like, you know, you need kind of hand-to-hand combat skills of how to engage with temptation, you know, um, hands-on. So we find this great story. Uh, this is from Kedushin 30a. So this Matronisa, Matronisa is a Roman noblewoman. We find the Talmud is full of stories between the rabbis and the Romans because they had a lot of uh, exposure to each other because that's when the, a lot of the individuals mentioned in the Talmud, uh, they all lived during the 400 years of the Roman uh, dominion over Israel or really over the whole world, basically. So this Roman noblewoman set out on a mission to seduce one of the rabbis. That's what it says. Uh, so she tried to seduce a ra- the great rabbi Tzadok, his name was, into sleeping with her. So what did, he, what did he say to her? He said, listen, my, my heart's not feeling well. I need something to eat. So she says, she's like, do you have anything to eat? So uh, she says, yes, I have something, but it's not kosher. So he says, who cares? If, I, if I'm about to do what I'm about to do, someone who does this eats this. So this is the, the Talmud telling us the story. So she's, she turns, turns on the oven, and she puts the food in the oven, and he decides promptly to jump in the oven. And she's like, what's going on over here? Why are you jumping in the oven? And he says, because someone who does this ends up here, so to speak. Like, someone who, someone who sins gets punished. And she said, oh, if I would have known that you had such a, uh, you, you know, that, 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 that you didn't want to do this, I wouldn't have compelled you. That's the story. Remember, when we have a story in the Talmud, there's a lesson. Correct? That's the, it's not just telling us in the history. It's a lesson. And the lesson is, is that we have this individual who was engaged in an actual, in the ring of temptation. 
And his reaction or his way of engaging could be a lesson for us when we encounter temptation. What did he do? What did he do when she, when she tried to seduce him? What did he say? What was the first thing he said? My heart is not well. Do you have something to eat? The first thing that he did was try to delay. Try to delay. Why is that? Remember, we are told that we have a Yetzirah. The Yetzirah, what, 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 what does it do? It creates a fantasy. It creates an allure. It, cre- it expands it. It, 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 it takes uh, the, the pleasure and just gives this perception of it being so much greater. But the lesson of this story in the Talmud is that this is a, there's a countdown timer. Right? There's a countdown timer of the effectiveness of, 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 the, of the fantasy. The longer someone is able to delay, the weaker, the weaker or the less effect the temptation has over him. If someone's going to say, listen, all I need is just, I'll, I'll wait five minutes. You know what? I'm faced with temptation. Give me five minutes. Very likely the temptation will pass. Or, or, I think that's also true, but there's also another perspective where at the point of temptation, it seems at the most exciting it's, it's ever going to be, and then it starts moving downhill. So if you say, you know what, let me come back to this in five minutes, well, then maybe in five minutes it won't be as great of a temptation. Maybe I could wait another five minutes, you know? And it's a way to kind of bleed it out, so to speak, and wait till the temptation kind of ends. And then once he had this little respite of time, well, he came up with another solution. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll just, you know... Uh, not torture food. I'll eat that as well. Just more delay. She puts in the fire. He jumps in the fire. <laughs> he's able. He's able to. Uh, he's able to. Um, he's able to succeed. So, um, I think uh, as just some final thoughts, we I think that there really is only one way to actually be fully successful in in conquering temptation. That's with the Torah. How it works, we had two different explanations of how it actually works, uh, either because it, it emboldens your intelligence or it augments your willpower and your ability to learn to say no and to engage with your, with your uh, temptations. But philosophically, we know that Adam was presented with a challenge as well, like our challenge, like our challenge that we have today. Adam did not have Torah. So the question is, how could Adam possibly have been expected to succeed how could, if he didn't have Torah? Right? Torah is the tool we're going to use to overcome our temptations. How could Adam have been challenged without being first given a Torah to succeed in that challenge? That's a very good question. It's a very good question. And the answer is that uh, we're all familiar with the story of Genesis, correct? What took, what was the manifestation of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, in the story of Adam? Booyah. Third booyah of the day, the serpent. Adam was a different kind of human than all of us. We have a Yetzirah that's within ourselves, it's an internal influence. 
Adam's Yetzirah was an external influence, it was a serpent. When you have a voice from within, it's much more uh, a feeling of who you are. It's much harder to go against. It's internal. Hence, our challenge is much greater than the challenge of Adam. And therefore, for our challenge, we need a Torah. To reject the influence of someone which is external, he didn't need Torah for that challenge. For us, we have an internal challenge. We have to find a way to have an internal solution as well. We have to learn to internalize these skills right, that the Torah gives us of self-control, of willpower, of learning to say no, of focusing on our intellect, Right? And, 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 and preferring our intellect over our uh, physicality, these are the skills that the Torah teaches us because we need them. Yeah, now Adam, if Adam would have been successful, and he would never need the Torah. He doesn't need Torah. Right? Post-Adam, the stakes were raised. Right? The stakes just went up. The the eight stars within ourselves, the challenge is much greater, and therefore the solution has to be commensurate for it to be fair. It has to, or else it's not fair. How so? With the Torah. The Torah is the great balancing act. The Torah is going to enable us to be successful. Okay, so we'll stop here. I wanted to stop a little early, 11.15. I have uh, a couple of questions. Yes, absolutely. You were talking about the good, good and God said it was good. Yes. And told, told, told whatever um, he told. Um, is there anywhere in the Torah that it said it was not good? You know, it's always said God says it was good at the beginning. Yes. But is there anywhere throughout the five books that they're talking about Lotov? Lotov. Yeah, well, it says that Lotov, 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 also in Genesis. It says that it's not good for a man to be all alone. Oh, that's right. right? That's I should make him a partner. A partner. Uh, right? Okay, so that's later on. In yeah, it's a little later on. in create, Well, yes, that's right. But there's no other place that... In the Lotov? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, any other place in the Torah where it says it's not good? That's a good question. It was bad or something like yeah. that. Yeah. That uh, uh, it talks about bad as Ki Yetzer Lev Ha'adam Ramin Urav, right? God it's also God. in Genesis that, that man's uh, temptation is bad from his youth, right? From our youth, we're used to being driven by our temptations. And, and we have to learn to harness that, to. to to uh, to to lord over it, to control it. So Proverbs tells you that the way of a child's heart is toward evil, and it's the parent's responsibility to teach a child the path that he should go. Path that he should go. When he's yeah. old, he will not depart from it. That's right. Train up a child. He should go. Okay, so next week we will be starting at nine thirty. That's right, that's right. Next week, it's a shorter class, because it's 9.30 to 10. I will try not to disappoint. For only a half hour. I'll try to still bring my A game. We're talking about, huh? Just a half hour. What well, yeah, because the lady from the, the, the door is coming. Um, so we're